Same time, same carriage, same faces. Every day. Until one train ride changes everything. Discover a world of espionage in The Late Train to Gypsy Hill, the debut thriller from former Home Secretary Alan Johnson. Available to buy now in paperback. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are Professor Daniel Kahneman and Professor Olivier Siboni, who are co-authors with Cass Sunstein of a new book called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Welcome both of you. I'll start with a very, very obvious question. Is What do you mean by noise? Well, what we mean by noise is... First of all, judgment noise. Noise has many meanings. We refer to judgment noise. And what we mean specifically is variability in judgments that should be identical. So it's when the same person judges the same, makes the same judgment multiple times, or different people who should agree make judgments about the same object. If they vary, that is noise. It's like noise in measurement, and in general, it's the easiest way to think about judgment, is to think about judgment as measurement where the measuring instrument is the human mind. And then you have judgment noise is the equivalent of measurement noise, which is a well-defined concept. And what are some sort of examples? I mean, I think I know you start with the judicial system as being a a prime instance of a noisy system. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a scandal, really. I mean, the, at least in the United States. I don't want to speak for other countries, but in the United States, this, a defendant facing a judge is really facing a lottery. And the extent of the lottery is truly shocking. So just to give you an example from research, it's... If you take a defendant and a crime, the average sentence for which is seven years, and you take two judges at random and you look at the difference between them, the difference you expect to find is four years. So that means really that the defendant faces a lottery. And the lottery is which judge will you face? And then what state of mind the judge is, because it turns out the judges uh, will vary depending on, you know, whether they're in a good mood, hungry or not. Uh, in fact, whether their football team won or lost. Uh, yes, there are some extraordinary. I mean, I, I think you make a distinction, don't you, between different types of noise. There's a sort of system noise, and then what you call occasional noise, which is that did your football team win? Yes. Thing. I mean, it's extraordinary. There's a a paper I think you mentioned saying that cloudy weather is good for nerds. Yes, it's a. <laughs> Yeah. It's a funny study that, you know, it's one of many studies that document this occasion noise that we talk about, which is the influence of extraneous factors that should not influence a judgment on that judgment. So one example is that juvenile judges in Louisiana are more severe when the football team of Louisiana State University has lost the game the previous weekend. And they're even more severe when that loss was an upset than when the loss was predicted. And another one is that the weather has an influence, and that's the one you were mentioning, the weather has an influence on admissions officers in universities 
who seem to be sensitive to different things when the weather is nice and when the weather is not so nice. When the weather is nice, they are thinking more, it seems, about extracurricular activities. When the weather is cloudy, they think less of those, which is why, as the title of that particular paper summarizes beautifully, clouds make nerds look good. <laughs> now, one of the things that we're used to thinking about in terms of errors of judgment is bias. And that's been long discussed. And of course, Danny, your, your work on it with Almostrowski kind of uncovered a whole field of cognitive biases that we hadn't been aware of. Noise, as you describe in this book, seems to be more invisible to us. Now, is it is it a kind of complementary thing? Is it a continuation of the same it project is a, for you? It, it is a it's an extension of the same project. And again, if you think of measurement, it helps a lot to think about measurement because when you are measuring an object, say a line with a very fine ruler, you are not going to get the same result every time that you repeat the measurement. The variability is noise. The average error is bias. So there is statistical bias, which is a systematic average error, and then there is variability. And you can see that variability and bias are both sources of inaccuracy, are both types of error. And indeed, you know, in the famous mathematical formula for that, which is more than 200 years old, and we owe it to Carl Frederick Gauss, Inaccuracy, the global measure of inaccuracy, is the square of the noise plus the square of the bias, which means that noise and bias have really equivalent weight in as determinants of error. And this is quite surprising because our focus, as you said, is almost exclusively on bias. As you pointed out, though, the, the reason our focus is more often on bias than on noise is that bias is easier to see. Bias is easier to comprehend we can actually point the finger at a reason. There is a, a picture we use in the book, and it's always difficult to talk about pictures in a podcast, but I'm going to try, where you, you imagine that a team of shooters goes to the shooting range and uses the same rifle to shoot at the same target. And if you see a cluster of shots that are in the center, in the bullseye, you see they're great. If you see a cluster of shots that are not in the bullseye, that are all in the same place but the wrong place, you immediately ask, what is wrong with the rifle? Or what is wrong with the wind? You immediately think of a cause, of a reason for that type of error. A sort of That's systematic bias. and consistent error. Systematic yeah. and consistent error is the definition of bias. It's a shared error. All your shooters are making the same mistake. That begs the question, why? And because it begs the question, why? You find a reason, and you can actually predict that if a 6th and a 7th and an 8th shooter take the same rifle and shoot at the same target, they're going to shoot in the same place. Now, if what you do see is not that bias, that shared error, but a random scatter of shots around the target, you simply say, well, they are not great marksmen, these guys. You don't ask yourself why. You stop there. You're content to look at the noise, and you don't look any further. And that's why bias gets a lot more discussed, basically. It's a lot more visible than noise. And there is another reason, which is that you can see bias in an individual error. 
that is an individual error looks like bias or bias because it's an average looks like an error whereas noise is you cannot point to a particular error and say this is noise noise is variability it's differences between errors and that makes it much more abstract so you can only see it by looking statistically yes yes, yes. it's a purely it's a statistical rather than a causal concept you can be a biased individual but you cannot be a noisy individual you're only <laughs> noisy to the extent you that you're part of a system well, you, you can have occasion you can be susceptible to more occasion yeah. noise but sometimes people ask us you know how do you say which of the judges in the system are noisier than the others we can't. It's the justice system that is noisy because it's got a lot of judges who are different from one another. So it's a, it's a systemic, systemic problem. Well, what, what was it that started you and Professor Sunstein on this particular well, project? The, the project started really when I was doing some consulting with an insurance company. And I had the idea of running what we now call a noise audit, which is trivial really is an exercise which is to present the same problems to a series to a large number of underwriters and ask them to put a dollar value on on each of these cases and the important point is i asked the executives or some of the executives in that company what they expected the results to be and the question was if you look at two underwriters selected at random how much will they differ in percentage of the average of their judgment? And this particular question turns out to have an answer that many people agree on. Olivier, I think, has asked hundreds of people that question. And the answer that you get is roughly 10%. And that was roughly the answer that I got from executives. The true number was 50%, five zero, five times larger than expected. And that's basically the origin of the noise. It's not only that there is disagreement among people, that was well known, has always been well known, but that there is a lot of disagreement. Of, so the scale of it is misunderstood. And, and, and that it is, it comes as a surprise. So, you know, our, our, the cliche that we have as a summary is that wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and there is more of it than you think. Yeah. because it's difficult to imagine how much there is. And why is it, do you think, that it hasn't been tackled so thoroughly? I mean, is it a domain-by-domain domain thing? I mean, as you say, there has been a history of, you know, some years ago, at least in the New York judicial system, somebody said, this is noisy, we need to find ways of fixing it. I can't remember the name of the, the man. But is it like, are there some areas where this is well noticed and some where people simply haven't... Got a grip of it? Uh, oh, no, I think, you know, there has been some concern. I mean, the, the judicial system is, is really a particular case because there is real reluctance to admit that the justice system is inherently flawed. But physicians have been concerned with noise. They're, they've been aware of it. Uh, uh, you know, there is a need for another opinion. In fact, though, there is much more noise in medicine than physicians are aware of. So there, there had been some concern. We tried to show that the problem is very widespread, completely general, and can be analyzed and can be measured. I mean, to, to, to add to this, there's, 
you know, at least two root causes that we identify in the book. One is that when you're making a judgment, you're thinking hard. You're thinking of all the reasons that justify your judgment. You are using your expertise. You're using the knowledge that you have. You're using the data about the case. It does not enter your mind that someone as competent as you are and well-intentioned could have a completely different judgment. This is the, the example of the underwriters in the insurance company that Danny was talking about. It's also an experiment that we keep making all the time when we give talks about this. You, you give people a case and you ask them, what is the probability of success of this person? And you've got a bunch of HR experts and some of them say 100%, he's sure to succeed. And others say 0%, he's sure to fail. And if you then ask the people who answered 100 or 0, if it had entered their mind that someone could believe the, the exact opposite of what they believe, they say, of course not. You know, it's, it simply does not come to our uh, awareness. That's what has sometimes been called naive realism, and then he knows it's it naive better than realism, me. it's been called false consensus. But, you know, the general idea is that each of us, as we look at the world, we think we see the world as we do because that's the way it is. But so we have the feeling that we see the world veridically. And if we do, then our neighbor looking at the same world is bound to see the same thing. But in fact, the variability in the way that people see the world is enormous. And there's another reason in organizations, which is that organizations are designed to suppress the evidence of the noise that we're talking about. They are designed to produce consensus so that people can agree, make decisions, move forward. So take the example of making a hiring decision. You and I have met the same candidate and you think he's wonderful and I think he's terrible. How are we going to resolve this? We're going to walk into a room and we're going to start talking about the candidate. And if you're my boss and you speak first, it's very likely that I will soften my... <laughs> The judgment about the candidate to bring it closer to yours. And in all sorts of subtle and not so subtle ways, this happens all the time in organizations, and the extent of the noise, the amount of variability in judgments is rarely exposed in the way that the noise audits that he was talking about exposes them. It's uh, indeed, it's very rare for multiple underwriters to be looked to be performing exactly the same task. So in many domains, the standard is that one judge makes a judgment. This is true in the justice system. It's also true in the patent system and in many others. Yes, you make the point that actually sometimes these aren't verifiable. How, yes. do, you get, how do you get round that when it comes well, to dealing with the noise? Beauty of, one of the beauties of the concept of noise is that you don't need verifiability to measure noise. You do not need the true answer. And if you take the the figure that Olivier was describing earlier of shooting at the target, if you turned it around so that you saw the, only the back of it and didn't know where, where the bullseye was, you would still see the variability. So you can see noise without knowing the true answer. And noise is a problem even when you don't know the true answer. There is no true objective value of how many years of prison a defendant should get for a particular crime. But if one judge says that is one year and another one says it's 15, you know you have a problem. Yeah. There does seem to be one respect in which noise seems to be advantageous, 
you talk about the wisdom of crowds idea. Francis Galton, the great statistician, you know, is it was the discoverer of this. But at the same time, you say, you know, the vast numbers of you know noisy estimates will converge on something that's uncannily like the right answer. But then you also say, on the other hand, you have group polarization, which seems to tell us the opposite lesson. How do those things actually combine? Actually, the term wisdom of crowd is widely misunderstood because when you take a very large number of judgments, you are guaranteed to eliminate noise, but you're doing absolutely nothing to bias. So that, in fact, there is no guarantee that a lot of people, when they make judgment, are going to converge on the right answer. There is a guarantee that the average will converge, but it could converge to a biased answer. So crowds in that sense, are not wise. What the average of a crowd judgment is, it is not noisy. Noise you can eliminate by aggregating judgments. Bias you cannot reduce in that way. And in, in that sense, I think, you know, the person, sorry, Yekish, who, who made the concept of wisdom of crowd uh, so popular, made a real disservice because crowds are not wise on average. <laughs> Statistical groups are wise on average because you can actually take the average of a lot of independent judgments that are a priori, a priori unbiased. And if they are unbiased and you take out the noise, they will be, as you point out, uncannily close to the correct answer. That's the, the classic Galton experiment or the one that you can replicate with a, a jar of jelly beans in a classroom, which you know, I'm, I'm sure all your listeners have heard about. As soon as you have groups working together and discussing an issue, you introduce biases because of the sorts of social influences and social mechanisms that I was alluding to earlier. And the amount of bias you introduce in doing that is likely to be much greater than the amount of noise you're taking out by averaging the judgments of those people. And that's why a group is rarely wiser than the individuals that compose it. The statistical average of the members of the group could be wiser if you actually ensured the independence of those judgments. But that's what organizations are not very good at doing. It is wiser, but it is not less biased. That is, in the absence of bias, you can eliminate noise and eliminate error. And in all those very striking cases in which the average is uncannily close to the truth, it's because there is no bias. And averaging is guaranteed to reduce noise. Yeah. And most people aren't biased about jelly beans. <laughs> exactly. Probably, I mean, towards the centre of the book, there's a thing where you start talking about how organisations can reduce noise and can get rid of it. And this is probably this is getting hardest to swallow intuitively, because you essentially seem to say, unless I misrepresent you, that mechanical rules, and often quite simple, blunt mechanical rules, are far more effective at reducing noise and therefore reducing error than more sophisticated ones or than human judgment. That is, you know, I, mean, I found myself writing more or less, you know, abolish humans in my note, um, <laughs> which is an overstatement perhaps. But it's, it's an overstatement. But, but the truth is that human judgment has been compared to rules, to very simple rules for aggregating available information. This is kind of research has been going on for about 70 years. And, and the result is unequivocal. Rules are better than judges, or at least as good. And the advantage of rules is straightforward. Rules are noise-free. Humans are noisy. Uh, 
And indeed, if you manage to remove the noise from human judgment, you improve it. But, but that turns human judgment into a rule when you remove the noise from it. Now, your, your surprise at reading this or your uh, puzzlement is widely dismay. shared. <laughs> your dismay <laughs> is widely shared. And you know, the fact that this research has been done 60 or 70 years ago does not mean that it is widely known or widely used. On the contrary, it is essentially ignored. And people, by and large, still strongly believe that their individual ad hoc case-by-case judgment is much better than the application of a blind standardized rule. Which is why our focus is not on telling them abolish humans, as you said, but rather on telling them try to make humans slightly less noisy. Because the advantage of rules is that they are noise-free. If you could be a slightly less noisy human system, you would retain the benefits of human judgments, but at the same time reduce the noise. That's the focus. I mean, one point we make is that people are very strongly biased against rules and against algorithms. And so it judgment, the use of judgment, where even when it is not optimal, is strongly favored by people. Well, so it's didn't... not only our own judgment we like. We prefer decisions about us to be made by people, even when we should know that having these decisions made by a rule would, on average, be more accurate. Yes, you have, have what kind of feels a very compelling idea. There's the business of judgment in a kind of cognitive sense or an effective sense is... You know, feeling you've come to a judgment is a feeling rather than a, a rational process, and that that somehow compensates us for the fact that that it may be wrong. Is that uh, that's absolutely the case? I mean, in general, a, a massive, you know, a very common observation in judgment is overconfidence. That is, when we reach a judgment, typically the sense we have is that there is no plausible alternative to the judgment that we made. And that's because, in general, there are plausible alternatives. Uh, we tend to be overconfident almost all the time. Now, this feels like it feeds a little into your idea of the system one and system two, that system one, as I understand it, is the sort of intuitive, heuristic kind of cognitive process, and system two is the slower, weighing the evidence, ratiocinative process. Can you harness system two in this way? Because the idea of motivated reasoning often suggests that actually system two just comes to the rescue of system one anyway. Well, uh, system two has to know in order to perform any corrections. And the system two of most people knows very little about noise. And really, uh, the idea that we see the world differently from the way other people see it, this is not part of our system two. It's not only part, not part of system one. That's not something we know. Why is it, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate a little here, that in evolutionary terms, we have developed a cognitive apparatus that is so noisy? What are the evolutionary advantages of being so crazily random? There is variability in every biological phenomenon. So, you know, fingerprints are different, uh, muscles differ in strength, and so on. And this, this variability in, in nature is actually quite useful because it's the engine of evolution, it's the engine of selection. But 
the variability that we talk about, variability in judgments, noise, is really useless because you learn nothing from it. And can algorithms and AI, which again, there's great instinctive resistance to that, should we be letting them take over the judicial system, take over medicine, take over the running of large businesses and insurance companies? Oh, it's a, it's a very interesting dilemma. Uh, in in some applications, and we we give some examples in the book, there is evidence that AI would do better on whatever measure of performance that you want to use would do better than human judges. One striking example is a study by Sandil Molay-Nathan and and his colleagues about bail decisions by U.S. judges. Do you care about having fewer people in prison for the same number of crimes? AI can do that. Do you want to have as many people in prison but fewer crimes? AI can do that. Do you want to have less racial discrimination? AI can do that. Do you want all three at the same time? AI can do that too. It will do better on any of these, any mix of these objectives than human judges will. Are we prepared to have bail decisions be made by an AI? That's the that's the fundamental question. I think the answer is no. I think the the do you think that's the wrong answer? Well, I I think I don't. It doesn't matter whether I think it's the wrong answer. I think the answer is that society is not prepared to do that, and for many applications that we care about, we're going to want humans to be in control. So our you know, key message here is to say, let's try to help humans to be less noisy in the way they make decisions. Because, of course, there will be more and more applications of AI for technical decisions. It's probable that 10 years from now, the idea of having a radiologist look at your X-ray images and try to make sense of them will seem a little bit... Uh, obsolete. Obsolete, right? But when it comes to judgments like you know, granting bail, sending people to jail, making strategic decisions in companies, I don't think we're going to want to give those up. I think we have to improve them. And how can you improve them? How do you introduce an element of the mechanical or the rule-based or the dispassionately, statistically structured into human decision-making? Because well, you've got quite a lot on this. The, uh, in the first place, we really address organisations more than individuals. I have never been very optimistic about the possibility of helping individuals improve their thinking because I've been studying that problem for decades and not improving my thinking. I think organizations have have the opportunity to apply procedures and organizations have the opportunity to design procedures that will reduce error. And so our efforts when we were thinking of mitigation and improving judgment were addressed to organizations and to the design of procedures. Yes, you talk, there seem to be some advances on this in medicine. I mean, the, the sort of checklists rather than... That's right. I mean, so we fit... This is a movement uh, currently uh, towards checklists, towards uh, a way really of go, getting away from, from global intuitions. What people seek in many situations of judgment, is to form an intuition, a global view of the situation. That typically comes with very high confidence and therefore with subjective comfort. And when you go to get away from this, you want to break problems into dimensions or into checklists 
and breaking up problems is the way of controlling or delaying intuition. Getting rid of intuition. One of the peculiar sort of wrinkles in this, you talk about how people are, you know, one form of judgment we make is a prediction about the future. You talk about, obviously, how extraordinarily overconfident we tend to be about predicting the future. And yet you do mention is much, certainly in this this country, much, much um, touted, this idea of these super forecasters, people who turn out to be weirdly good at predicting the future. What is it, as you describe it, that accounts for these people's abilities? What are they doing right? Well, we in... in we, we didn't do that research. Phil Tetlock and his group, yeah. who worked with super forecasters, tried to answer that question, what makes them great? Is it that they are smarter? Yeah, they are a little bit smarter than average. You know, clearly, their IQ is a bit higher, but that doesn't seem to be the big difference. Is it that they are more knowledgeable? No, it's not, because when you actually compare them with CIA analysts who have access to a lot more information, they still outperform the CIA analysts at making forecasts. What seems to be the main differentiator is that they are willing to change their minds. They are actively open-minded. They are looking for information that would prove them wrong. They are actively trying to cut out the noise, basically. They are actively trying to eliminate the variability in judgments and to change their mind as quickly as they can. I want to add something about the super forecasters. Super forecasters are great compared to other people. It's not that super forecasters are able to predict the future. The, most of the future is unpredictable to a very large extent. They just do better than other people, including CIA analysts. But CIA analysts do miserably in predicting the future. Well, the CIA itself has a great record of doing miserably. Well, no one has a very good record in predicting the future because it's unpredictable. Now... This is a very collaborative book. There's three authors. Does that make it noisy, or is this creating the wisdom of crowds? Well, as the readers, we, <laughs> we have our own view, but I suspect it's biased. And, you know, it's, there are multiple voices, and in that sense, uh, you know, the, the, the variability of styles have been has been noted by some people, but I don't think it's. A what is your book. what What is your your work style for producing this? I'm interested in how you go about it. Because I remember reading in Michael Lewis's book an account of how you worked with Tversky and a lot of sitting around spitballing. Well, is the same thing? Yes. Largely, but the, the the history of how this you know, came to be a book is that Denny had this idea, as he described it, and he and I started talking about it. And after a while, it became clear that there was a bigger idea there with societal and philosophical and legal implications. And you know, this weird combination of a psychologist, a management professor, and a legal scholar actually covered more of the bases that we needed to be covering to cover this topic. And it's, it's unusual, but I actually think it's a mode of collaboration that we should see more of because it helps you to cover a lot more ground. And Olivier and I worked very closely together. And actually, I think it was the book was finished because of COVID. Because prior to COVID, Olivier and I had been traveling between Paris and New York, which was tiring and not very effective. Was this working in consultancy? 
No, no. Just, just writing the book. Oh, just writing Without just COVID, we'd still be having a lot of great meals and having a good time and being very jet-lagged, and there, there still yeah. wouldn't be a book. And then we switched to <laughs> Zoom about an hour a day, and within a year, the book was finished. And did you sort of swap, swap chapters and check each other's work? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Many times. And especially by asking, who, who do you think will benefit from this book and should read it, apart from, obviously, everybody? I mean, are you finding that there's... Well, I mean, it's been out for a while now, so we can say who seems to be benefiting from it. And there is a few groups. One group which we hadn't expected to be as interested is physicians, doctors. We get a lot of calls from... Uh, doctors who say, oh my God, you know, we, we knew there was a problem, we didn't realize it was this large, we're trying to study it, and there is a lot of research you know, in lots of places about medical decisions. Another group which I've been talking to quite a bit is HR executives. We've got a couple of chapters about HR decisions, which are typically the sort of very high uncertainty decisions, where it's impossible to be right every time, and the temptation is, of course, to say, since I know that it's very difficult and it's going to be hard to be right every time, why don't I trust my judgment and my intuition? And what we're describing in the book is you know, the long list of reasons why that doesn't make sense. But this is a very challenging message to the HR community. What about the other groups, Danny? What? Well, there's one group that is spectacularly uninterested in, yes. in what we do, and that's judges. And this is because the, the issue of noise strikes at the very idea that the justice system is just. It raises a problem that is very difficult to face. And you get very strange answers when, when you talk to judges about the issue of noise. And yet, there, there's certainly, as, as you present the book, they're patient zero. Did you sort of know that the uh, judges were going to be the, the Maginot line you needed to go through? Yes, and I, I mean, you can see why even a noise audit would not be popular uh, within the justice system because it would, it would raise doubts about the quality of justice. And Do you have any sympathies for the instrumental argument that they might make that actually that's a dangerous thing to do? Well, I have, a, I have considerable sympathy for it because indeed, you know, you can, you can imagine the impact of uh, an article in a not in the scientific journal, but in, in the New York Times or the London Times, on documenting that judges disagree and are all over the place, that would actually make things difficult for everybody. Yeah. In, in France, about 18 months or two years, maybe three years ago now, uh, a law was passed giving access, you know, creating open access to judicial information. The provision of that law makes it a criminal offense punishable by five years in prison to make the sort of noise audit that we're describing public. Really? Yes. So if you analyze the public, information will be made available publicly, but if you use it for individual level predictive purposes, which is a bit fuzzy in the way it's described in the law, that's a crime punishable by five years in prison. It's very clear why that has been made a criminal offense, right? You do not want to decredibilize the system by making it possible to do the sort of analysis that says 
if you are in front of Judge Kahneman, he is biased and he's going to sentence you to a much higher sentence than Judge Sibony. That would be instrumentally, as you say, a real problem. But I don't think, personally, as a citizen, that suppressing the right to analyze this information is the answer. That's extraordinary. Has, I mean, has there been much debate? pushback no. against no, that? Because no, it's... it's I mean, your countrymen are great ones for pulling up paving stones and driving no tractors one, across No one's even ways, heard yeah. about this, except for a few lawyers who specialize in, in this type of law. It's gone completely when, unnoticed. When I presented uh, the material in front of a group of judges in the United States, and you know, there was a preliminary discussion of what we would talk about. They wanted to talk about noise in medicine. <laughs> so, and does noise in economics? I mean, is the idea that, for example, hedge fund managers and so on are noisy? That I mean, does does the, the market sort that out, or is that something that that equally needs looking at? So investment professionals are another community that is really, really, really interested in this topic. The market does sort it out, of course, right? So, and, and that is not noise. If you are buying and I am selling the same security, you're buying because you think it's undervalued. I'm selling because I think it's overvalued. Our disagreement is necessary for the market to exist. Without, without disagreement, there is no trade. The problem with noise is if you and I are not on both sides of the same trade, but are supposedly interchangeable analysts in the same firm deciding whether to buy or sell that particular security. And if you are an investment firm and you've got a number of different analysts who are making those calculations, you assume that they're applying the same rules, just like the insurance company assumes that the underwriters are applying the same rules. That assumption, just like in the insurance company, is of course plain wrong. There is a lot of noise in the way your analysts are making those evaluations. And a lot of investment firms are trying to introduce procedures in the way that Danny was describing to make their investment decisions less noisy. And are they are they working? I mean, are we seeing, a, you know, since the publication of your book, a new secondary market in noise auditing emerging? We, we, we think a market is uh, emerging. We are not actually you know, serving that market, so we wouldn't know. We've actually, <laughs> we've actually given out the, the, the instructions manual in, in an appendix of the book to make it clear that we're not in the business of doing noise audits. And anyone who wants to do a noise audit will find the very detailed recipe for, for how to do it in the book. Very good. Well, there's a recipe and much more that is fascinating besides Shannon Kahneman, Olivier Siboni. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.